You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's Joe here, and I'm with my good friends, Natalie and Sarah. Um, we, we've been sharing a lot of interesting stories about many things in the life sciences, maybe a little, little bit of climate science in there, too. But we really, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of science out in the world, and we want to make sure that we share that with you. And so here today, we have uh, one of our good friends, um, he is a astrophysicist. He is an astronomer. Uh, he is also, as he calls himself, a bona fide rocket surgeon. He is Kenneth Lynn. Uh, Kenneth, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have you. And uh, I guess uh, starting off, how, how are you doing? And uh, we're also just curious to hear a little bit more about you and the things you're doing. Great, great. Thanks for having me on the show. Um really happy to talk about what I do. Um, things have been busy, but um, we've been having a lot of fun with our uh, new expensive toys that stare at outer space, and Woo! we've been learning a lot, and um, yeah, happy to share. Yeah, so I guess um, just kind of starting off, uh, what was what was your path like kind of getting to where you are? Can you take us through your story a little bit, maybe just kind of like how like what what got you into your field right now and like where do you go to school Th things like that yeah so uh i grew up in a really small town uh in central massachusetts and <laughs> i graduated in high school with a class of only 98 students and it was great in the sense that um it wasn't close to a city so i was actually able to see the stars uh, but I've had a long-term interest uh, in in planetary science and in astronomy and physics. Uh, when I was really small, I really uh, remember this book that I read uh, where there was a personified cartoon version of Saturn and it was floating in a bathtub. And uh, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, you know, how could it be that something so huge uh, could be able to float in water. Um, of course, at the time, I didn't know anything about um, how density plays a role in this whole scheme of things. Uh, but later, as I progressed uh, through high school physics and through college, where I majored in physics and astronomy, that I started to realize, wow, there are unifying physical principles behind um, these not only everyday observations of phenomenon that we see but also in space and in the most extreme environments that we observe so i went to college at the university of massachusetts amherst and uh, after i completed my physics and astronomy degree i moved on 
to continue studying astrophysics at uh, UC Berkeley, where I am now. Uh, and currently I work at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, where I'm affiliated with both the scientific data division and the physics division. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun uh, working on these um, rather exotic problems uh, for this many years, uh, but it always um, amazes me that all of the findings that we're able to discover in these extreme circumstances of space also are the same rules that apply on Earth. Yeah, super, super cool. Um, I'm going to jump in oh. real quick with an honorary mention. I just want to say all the people on this podcast episode today were all UMass Amherst grads. <laughs> I'm an aggressive UMass Amherst stan. I have it on my license plate and everything. So really just needed to shout that Wait. out. We all graduated class of 2020. Wait, Natalie, you were, you are UMass? <laughs> Yeah, girl, it's on my car. It's, it's I don't know what to car. tell you. <laughs> it's on my car. Oh, man. All right. Um, anyway, I totally digress this. No. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> no worries. Very important point. Very important point. Um, but, yeah, I guess kind of getting back into it. Um, we, a lot of us as biologists, we kind of, the way we perceive, like, the problems that we're looking at, um, oftentimes, like, things are very complex, um, in terms of like one input may not necessarily have one output. Sometimes you can do one thing and like 50,000 different things happen in 50 different contexts. And it's all very complicated. And sometimes uh, rules are a little confusing. And uh, you, you just mentioned, Kenneth, that um, there are often some very interesting um, like rules and principles in physics. And I was just kind of curious to see, get your opinion on like how do physicists really see the world and like how does that compare to something maybe like biology or ecology and why is that important yeah that's an excellent question so physicists and mathematicians uh to certain extents have um fairly reductionist worldviews so what i mean by that is the idea is to boil down complex phenomenon complex um, interactions and boil them down to their most simple form. And oftentimes when we go and observe certain phenomenon happening, our brains are not naturally used to or trained to understand the fundamental principles behind what we observe. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you'll see many things in nature that are counterintuitive and that you know, oftentimes some things that you are not able to easily explain um, just by your intuition. And so physicists try to build this kind of intuition and try to counter your natural tendency to explain things in conventional ways that um, more likely than not will end up being incorrect. So one, one example is, um, you know, does a feather or a rock uh, fall down faster uh, if you let both drop at the same time? And um, clearly uh, on Earth, if you do this experiment, you'll see that uh, the rock is going to land on the ground faster than the feather. 
Uh, but if you repeat the same experiment on the moon, uh, where there is no uh, air resistance or or any other confounding factors that will interfere with motion, the feather and the rock end up landing on the ground at the same time. And this experiment mm. was repeated by um, one of the Apollo astronauts uh, back uh, in the 70s. And wow. so uh, this is uh, something that Isaac Newton predicted back in the 1600s. And ended up being proven true uh, hundreds of years later. Um, and there are other examples too, which are a little more exotic, but um, you know, there are things like uh, superfluid helium, right? So if you take um, some helium, um, we know of it as the gas in balloons. It's a very light gas. It's actually very rare. It's very expensive these days. Mm. If you take helium and you cool it down to extremely low temperatures. And we're talking about maybe millikelvin above absolute zero, uh, which is the lowest temperature uh, that is possible where atoms just simply stop moving. Uh, if we cool them to a fraction of zero K, uh, you will find that helium becomes not just a fluid, not just a liquid, uh, but it becomes something called a superfluid. And it has very interesting properties where um, if you have liquid helium in a superfluid state sitting inside a cup, it can actually creep outside the cup. It can Wait, climb what? the walls of the cup and creep outside. And that's wild. That Sorry, is I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's so cool. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. So superfluid helium. Wait, sorry, I'm like a little confused. It like it, it like os through like osmosis. It goes through the glass. It goes it, up the sides. It, can, it goes over. up the sides and oh, over. So the, oh, oh, oh. the superfluid okay. helium is able to climb outside the cups, and um, the reason behind that is because in the superfluid state. Uh, there is zero what we call viscosity or it's a form of friction so there's basically um it's a frictionless fluid and so things like that are very very unusual and counterintuitive to our brains we're not really able to imagine it um or, or even try to fathom how this might work uh but by studying physics by by reducing the complex to the simple uh, we're able to start to gain an intuition about what is going on, even if the results seem very unusual. Thank you for that overview. Um, you definitely painted a really uh, good picture there. I, I always think that the comparison between the feather and the rock, um, it's, it's just such a good example because I, no matter how many times I think about it, I just cannot like you said, wrap my brain around the fact that they're going to weigh this or they're going to fall at the same rate on the moon. Like it, and even though you've said it and it's literally been proven true, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around it. Um, so going on, moving on to a little bit of kind of the physics that you do in particular. So you're an astrophysicist. Is that, I think one big thing in science or, or a common theme that, that people hear about is precision and accuracy when you're doing scientific testing or, or when you're in a lab setting trying to put together experimental conditions and answer a question. You can't put the universe into a lab. 
So how do you perform that research? And I mean, you talked about the the man who went to the uh, one of the Apollo missions, went to the moon. He tried that experiment himself. You can't go to the moon. There, UC Berkeley is not going to fund you for that. So wondering how that kind of looks. I know, wish they could, but they won't. Um, so wondering what that kind of pans out like in your day-to-day as a physicist in the lab. That's a really good question. Uh, and you have a really good point in that there are basically no possible means through which we're able to do tabletop testing of what we're studying. So... For example, we cannot measure the mass of the Earth, let alone the sun or the galaxy inside the lab. Uh, So that's obviously a big part of the challenge in the science that we do. We have to make use of limited information in order to try to extract as much um, out of that information as possible. And that is uh, quite a difficult problem. One of the approaches that astrophysicists take uh, is to prefer accuracy over precision. So in many other laboratory sciences, precision is something that is very important. Uh, You need to have many trailing digits after the decimal point. But... Because the scales that we're dealing with in astronomy are so vast, um, ranging from the size of the universe, which is the largest possible scale, to the smallest of scales um, at the atomic level, um, what we really want is um, an, an accurate ballpark estimate of values rather than a really precise number. So to give you an example, um, the sun weighs around 2 times 10 to the 33 grams. And it's not really that useful to talk about this mass um, with additional trailing digits. So for example, there is no difference for us when we say something weighs 2.2 times 10 to the 33 grams versus 2.1 times 10 to the 33 grams um, versus just saying 2 times 10 to the 33 grams. Because at the end of the day, um, we're talking about numbers that are so large, 10 to the 33, which is a 1 followed by 33 zeros, essentially, that... um, you know, at the end of the day, when we go down in place value, uh, the significance of that dimin- diminishes significantly. So for us, uh, it matters less uh, that we have infinite precision um, and matters more that we are able to get a ballpark estimate. And Sarah and Joe, I mean, you guys both have experience in life sciences laboratories. So maybe what is the precision or how does precision and accuracy play out differently in the life sciences, just so our listeners can kind of have a comparison? Yeah, I think um, for me, a lot of times when I'm setting up my experiments, 
I need to be both precise and accurate in the sense that I need to be um, like oftentimes like if I have a very, very, very small volume of liquid that I'm working with, I need to make sure any small volumes that I'm adding to that are like the exact very at least very, very, very close to the exact volume that I'm trying to put in like the little test tube or things like that. And so I need to be both precise in terms of like as many like in a lot of times as many decimal places as I can after the, or the zero uh, or after the, the decimal point. Um, and I have to be accurate. I have to be close to that that target value. And um, in a lot of cases, sometimes maybe we can sacrifice uh, or sacrifice precision a little bit as long as we're accurate. But um, I would argue that when you're like you're doing something very very sensitive, like when we're doing um, RNA sequencing, and we need like a, like the same amount of RNA in every single sample, um, like we need to be both precise and accurate. Whereas here, like things are just so big that like like in physics, correct me if I'm wrong, Kenneth. It seems like things are just so big that once you get too big, you're just really comparing different amounts of really big. Uh, in the sense that, like, yeah, the the sun is big, but like, one point one point two times the sun, as you were saying, um, like one point two times the mass of the sun, isn't really that much different than one times the mass of the sun. But like a like a star that's like ten times bigger than um, the mass of the sun, that's when you really start to see differences on the like the the astronomical scale. That, right. I, I don't know if I'm making sense. Right. And I think uh, there is one thing I might add is uh, in astrophysics, because the length scales, the time scales, all of these scales uh, have such a wide dynamical range. If we increase the precision, that is not telling us any more about the physics of what is underlying whatever that we're observing. Uh, than if we just truncate these digits to uh, just an order of magnitude uh, estimate. And by order of magnitude, what we typically mean is we're able to gain an accuracy of all values that we measure to about within a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I remember uh, Kenneth and I, we, we've been good friends for a while and uh, he he actually was t offline. He was telling me about uh, one of the classes that he's uh, either running or thinking about running, um, kind of just like approximating interesting things. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm just curious if you could share with our listeners a little bit about that. I I have some stories that I think we could share as well, but I, I know you have some cool points about like all the different things you can approximate using this kind of method, right. this kind of mindset. Right. So one of the courses I'm teaching um, next semester is called order of magnitude physics and it's essentially a class that will train you on how to think not in a very precise way but more of gaining an intuition of the physics in order to arrive at a relatively accurate answer because many of the questions that we pose, and sometimes people call them Fermi problems, many of these questions are either not well-defined or are virtually impossible to answer uh, in a precise way. So to give you an example, um, 
one of the problems may be like how much rubber is liberated by cars each year driving down a two mile stretch of uh, interstate 80 in berkeley hmm. um and you know tires they wear out over time right so you usually change your tire if uh, you stick a penny in and you can see abe lincoln's head um so i didn't know that <laughs> this is now a mechanics podcast <laughs> we're switching it up yeah so um your tires will wear out after some time on the road and you know obviously that will depend on how much you drive and we're making some assumptions here for example you're not driving cross country every week so you know based on these fairly reasonable assumptions we should be able to arrive at an answer of you know how many kilograms of rubber is liberated just by this two mile stretch of highway in Berkeley. And this is something that you can, you can go ahead and calculate. Um, there are many steps that you need to take along the way. For example, you would need to try to estimate the size of an average tire, um, how much traffic passes through these sections um, during the day, how much traffic there is on the highway during rush hour, um, what the rubber release rate uh, looks like if you have fairly average driving habits and if you go through the numbers you'll find um with some deviation you you you'll find within a typical two mile stretch of an interstate highway where you may have rush hour traffic in the mornings and in the evenings that up to 20 to 30 tons of rubber is liberated per year just by tires. And uh, where does the rubber go? It goes into the grass, it goes into the oceans, and it goes into your lungs. And so mm. a lot of the problems that we think about have uh, physics behind them. You just need to think about uh, how the equations apply. Um, and once you're able to solve these problems, they can have real world impact um and so these are the skills that that uh, we're trying to train it's really cool it's interesting that you bring up the concept of thinking because in this whole like metacognition thing because in the biological sciences we don't really tend to do that as much but in something like a physics that's almost the entire discipline and it's built off of at least from what i've seen these thought experiments and i guess my question for you is you also have a background in astronomy, which is a much like macroscopic, much more macroscopic scale. Whereas I guess astrophysics could also be macroscopic, but you're also looking at quantum scale and small interactions. So how have you sort of balanced those schools of thought in your mind as you've gone through your time? Because I think for me, I would definitely mix them up. Um, yeah, how how's been your journey with that? I know that's not an easy question. <laughs> right. Um, that's, uh, that's, a, that's another good question. Um, and you're right. It is challenging to bridge these two scales. In fact, one of the most pressing problems in physics is trying to bridge the quantum with the astronomical. Um, the quantum world is often 
viewed as at odds with uh, large-scale physics such as um, relativistic effects and um, this is one of the major problems in modern physics. So many people are struggling with uh, how you bridge these two scales. But at the end of the day, uh, when we do physics and try to reduce everything down to its most basic form, one of the common questions that we ask ourselves is uh, what effects dominate, when, where, and how. So at the quantum scales, at very, very small atomic scales, there are certain effects uh, that dominate. For example, uh, we may think about the strong and weak nuclear forces when we're thinking at the atomic scale, uh, but we probably will not be um, worrying too much about gravitational effects because gravity usually is something that affects uh, large-scale structures. Uh, whereas when we're talking about uh, cosmological structure as a whole, what we care about are things like um, dark energies, gravitational effects, uh, and we're not as worried about, uh, say, electrostatics. So when we go between the smallest scales to the largest scales, we must ask ourselves, which effects dominate and to what extent? And this is one way that we can simplify a lot of the very complex problems that we often face, uh, and they're quite daunting. And we use, again, try to reduce things to their most basic form. So with that in mind, you know, having to go in almost like objectively to each question um, that you're faced with, maybe what, um, what are, it seems like you need to rewire your thinking to be a physicist. So maybe what are the top, what are some things that come to mind when you think about thinking like a physicist? Like, what would you tell another person if they were like, how do I think like that? Or one of your students, perhaps? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. So I often say that um, physics is a way of thinking. And I didn't really fully appreciate that um, back in high school or, or even in college. Uh, but after getting more into uh, the forefront of where the research is these days, um, it, I've come to realize that um, we really need to have a different sort of thinking uh, in order to make any sort of progress. So there are a couple of things that um, physicists keep in mind uh, when we do our work. So I would say the top thing um, is to always stay skeptical and um, we never want to take claims at face value. And what this translates into is if someone um, gives you an equation on the street and um, tells you that uh, this is uh, what happens at the singularity of a black hole, you don't just take it as truth, you go and verify whether this equation is true by trying to rederive it or trying to compare it to um, the results that you might expect uh, on first principles. Uh, 
So these things are all aspects that um, are critical uh, if you want to make progress in physics. You need to always stay skeptical. When you said um, you have to, you know, you're not getting an equation on the street, I just thought of the old-timey newspaper people. Equation! Get your equation here! And he's just handing it out on paper. <laughs> That's I, what came to mind. I, I got an image of someone walking up and being like, hey, I got some equations. No one's yeah. ever seen these before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> give me a hundred bucks and I'll give you one of these. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know... Um, you know, people publish a lot of papers and um, oftentimes it is difficult to go and check someone's work. But nevertheless, um, it is crucially important that, um, you know, you go and and rederive results and try to compare them to observations. Try to verify that um, there is some reality buried in the theoretical framework. So um, this is something that I would say every physicist has um, is this uh, uh, real um, sense of um, uh, being a skeptic um, of everything they see. And um, that is sort of a segue to, to the second aspect that I think is very important uh, for physicists, which is to always be asking questions about um, anything, uh, whether it be um, daily life or um, more profound questions about um, where we came from. Uh, and then the difference between a physicist and um, perhaps people from uh, non-science backgrounds is physicists will actually go and try to answer these questions uh, through experiment and observation. Um, so ask questions and then actually go try and answer them. So this is something that um, is at the core of our work as physicists. And of course, um, in today's day and age, we're often told to uh, sort of stay in your lane and um, not speak about something that is not within your formally trained zone of expertise. Uh, but the mindset of uh, people who do physics um, is that we should always stay curious about everything, especially if it is not in our expertise, because we need to have a curiosity to learn something new and, and to question existing paradigms, because um, oftentimes we discover new and profound things uh, when we step outside our field and um, are able to refresh um, what people had long thought to be um, true. So, you know, the canonical example that people give um, is uh, that Isaac Newton's kinematic equations were uh, true universally, but in fact, um, they are just a specific case that applies on Earth. Um, and are generalizable through um, Einstein's equations. Uh, so you always need to stay curious and um, question the status quo, uh, even if it's not within your expertise. It is okay and encouraged that you ask questions. I love that. 
Mm-hmm. I uh, I definitely like. I think it's really important uh, for all of us and definitely all our listeners to hear as well. Uh, I think um, a lot of like I. I, I absolutely agree. These this is something that physicists really, in my view, exemplify. Um, I also think that these are really good principles for any kind of scientist to be the best kind of scientist that they could be. And so I really do think that uh, uh, Kenneth is uh, to all our listeners and everyone else chatting now. I definitely think that Kenneth is sharing some important principles that we can all take away from this. And maybe we don't necessarily have big fancy telescopes. Um, to observe the universe and things like that, which I mean, I, I would love to have a big fancy telescope like that. But um, at the bare minimum, what I can do is I could I could think scientifically. Um, I don't have to have a fancy lab to do that. Um, and so uh, maybe I'm trying to calculate, uh, I don't know, how much air I'm breathing every day. You can find those numbers online and do like think about a little, a few things to throw those together. I, I've... Uh, I uh, actually, Kenneth and I, uh, a while back, uh, I apologize for this, Kenneth, but uh, we we did a very, very very important calculation. This is the power of scientific thinking right here. Uh, We calculated the amount of farts that our entire college campus may be releasing within a year. Um, It it was a large volume. Uh, We had to take into account like the the temperature, um, the average volume of uh co like co2 at a certain amount of time like papers that kind of talk about the uh the volume of the average fart um and and these are very very highly important things um and we didn't have a lab to do that we just had our brains um so and to and to add to that you know there are certain implications of um of uh flatulence on climate change right so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, this is actually um, significant output. Um, we shouldn't be just blaming the cows, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just say, I this is great. I love this story. The more that I think about physics and science in general and staying skeptical and staying curious is like at the heart of all of science, like what Joe's basically getting at, is just an innate creativity. I think if you can cultivate that curiosity and the creativity throughout your life, you're already doing science to a degree, right? It's all all about making discoveries and innovating new methods and coming up with different ways of doing things. And actually, one of my mentors recently said, some of the best creators and innovators are people who have the freshest eyes to something because they're not so used to looking at things in the way that they've been taught necessarily, right? They're like not super into their discipline. So it's interesting you say all that and it's definitely an attitude that I'm going to take forward and I hope our listeners do as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, you know, because... Astronomy is unique in the sense that we are often faced with problems that seem unanswerable. And so one of the first things we resort to uh, is trying to um, ask questions and uh, see what we're able to answer. And this attitude is what allows us to always be skeptical because you know these are things that you can't just walk into a lab and test very easily. And so, you know, this builds a sense of, of healthy skepticism, I would add. 
and um, it actually is very encouraging when we actually are able to answer these questions and it allows us to stay curious. So I also kind of want to transition. We've talked a lot about astrophysics and yeah. physics in general, but I think I'd love to, and I imagine everyone on this call and our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about what you do, maybe in your day-to-day or what sure. your research area um, is. So if you could kind of walk us through that, that would be that would be great. Yeah, so... Um... Just to step back a little uh, and familiarize everyone with our discipline, um, astrophysics is unique in that we have about uh, three distinct focus areas that uh, people usually work in. Uh, The first and most popular uh, is observational astronomy. And uh, this is essentially the prototypical astronomer where they take a lot of imaging data, spectroscopic data from observatories, and then they go and analyze this data and try to discover something new or try to go verify or disprove a theory or uh, go and uh, do um, do all sorts of uh, different um, different um, different uh, scientific uh, what we call surveys. Um, and so uh, this is this is basically the uh, majority of the uh, astronomy community. But there are also uh, two other major fields of uh, astronomy. Yeah, I have okay. a quick question. What do you mean by survey? Like when when I think of survey, I think of like a form that people fill out. Like, what's your opinion on X, Y, Z, um, things like that. But I have a feeling that you mean something different. Um, so I, I'm just curious about that. Oh, right. So astronomical surveys are essentially catalogs that are millions of objects long. And um, in practice, what you do is you automate a telescope to scan the sky uh, at some certain pace, at some certain rate, and you image these objects uh, very systematically and you basically are able to build a catalog of these objects and create an atlas uh, of the sky. And so that is uh, what a survey is. And uh, many observational astronomers um, partake in these large-scale projects as part of large collaborations in order to accumulate as much data as possible in the most cost-efficient way um, possible from modern telescopes. Cool. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So there are two other classes of astronomers. Um, The second uh, largest area is theoretical astrophysics. And essentially what theoretical astrophysicists do is... um, is theory. So they set out and try to explain the phenomenon that observers are picking up through their telescopes. And they try to interpret these findings and uh, find the physical basis uh, behind the phenomenon that we observe. So for example, 
if an observer sees a very strong X-ray source coming from a nearby galaxy that is not the Milky Way, then theorists may try to come up with an answer of where the source of this X-ray emission may be coming from. Could it be coming from a star exploding at the end of its uh, life? Or could it be an accretion disk around the black hole um, that is actively eating away a stellar companion? We don't know, uh, just based on observations necessarily. And oftentimes it comes to theoretical astrophysicists to help interpret some of these uh, unique observations. And the smallest uh, but likeliest, the most important, if I may say, class of astronomers <laughs> are the instrumentalists, uh, who include myself. Um, instrumentalists uh, are quite a niche field, and what we do is uh, improve the instrumentation, the detectors, the spectroscopes, the spectrographs, and all of these different um, parts of the telescope in order to push the limits of what we're even able to observe. So observers, of course, um, they make their observations, um, but it is the instrumentalists who are the enablers of new classes of observations. So in the past few years, we've seen a number of advancements in the technology of detectors and telescopes that have allowed us to make new classes of discoveries. So um, notable example uh, is the gravitational wave observatories, uh, the pair called uh, LIGO. Um, and LIGO first uh, observed gravitational waves several years ago and, and they continue to make these observations. Uh, but in the decades leading up to the first observation of gravitational waves, there was a lot of effort put in on um, designing and making instrumentation uh, for these observatories and also coordinating with optical observatories elsewhere on Earth in order to see any counterpart electromagnetic radiation emitted from gravitational wave sources. And so this, uh, this coordination between new gravitational wave observatories and their instrumentation along with um, precise detectors in optical observatories have opened up a new field called uh, multi-messenger astronomy where we're able to uh, observe both the electromagnetic counterpart signals uh, of these uh, so-called transient events uh, with the gravitational wave uh, signals that come from gravitational wave detectors such as LIGO. And this is a, a very important milestone because um, it allows us to actually observe and, and see with with literally our eyes for the first time um, how the heaviest elements in the universe such as gold were created uh, whereas before we had um, very little idea about how 
these um, heavier elements, rare earth elements came from, um, from these technologies, we've been able to deduce that um, it is the collision of neutron stars and the explosion that occurs thereafter that creates many of these rare earth elements. Wow. So uh, if we want to do alchemy, we just take two neutron stars and smash them together and boom, gold. Yes. So easy. <laughs> so, so easy to so do. So if... if if Earth were near um, two colliding neutron stars, um, and neutron stars are very, very dense objects, they're almost entirely made of neutrons, and uh, they're they're extremely dense to the point where a teaspoon of it would weigh um, of order Earth masses. Wait, so, wait, wait, wait! What? How many? A teaspoon of a neutron star material would weigh of order earth masses not so, you know a few kilograms not a few grams but literally a few earth masses wow wow so so wait look. oh just a few multiple so, like, just a couple earths so I, I take i take my magical space spoon and i scoop up some neutron star and it weighs like let's say four five six maybe ten times as much as the entire earth so Essentially, that would be true. So a teaspoon of neutron star material, and if you want to put a number to it, it would weigh essentially 4 billion tons uh, based on the density of the actual substance in neutron stars. And keep in mind that these these objects contain more material than the sun, despite neutron stars being only around 10 miles across, which is... You know, what? to give you perspective, it's about the size of a, of, of a city. Um, yet it contains more material than the sun. And so you do not want to be living uh, alongside uh, a neutron star, obviously. But if you were somehow far enough away from a neutron star, neutron star collision, the amount of gold it would produce would be about say it could be about the mass of an earth or the the mass of a planet you could have a planet of essentially gold and so if you were in that situation gold would no longer be valuable so (laughs) what you're saying is i can't smash stars together to get rich rich quick unfortunately uh it would lose its value through inflation that's disappointing I have a question. Uh, That's the next crypto. I have a question. <laughs> Meshing stars together. I have a question. So, like, I know we're talking about smashing things together and, like, you know, on the grand scale, maybe neutron stars. But, you know, that that's farther into the future. Right now, we're smashing different <laughs> particles together, right? And where where are those happening? Where Like, I can't just go to a museum and see, you know, two atoms being collided, right? Like, where, where would the general public go to see that? Or could they even see that? Where are these laboratories? Right. So um, a lot of particle physicists with whom I collaborate a lot um, these days work at these large-scale particle physics laboratories. And um, they're often um, just rings um, buried underground and... 
they accelerate particles to extremely high energies and smash them with each other and see what comes out. And that is a really, um, uh, uh, really the central effort in um, high energy physics and in particle physics uh, these days. So um, there are a few uh, laboratories that um, do this. So the largest one and the, um, the most well-known, I think, is CERN, which mm. is the Center for European Nuclear Research. And they smash particles together at very high energy, at the highest energies of any particle accelerator on Earth. And um, they're trying to discover um, ultimately uh, how how subatomic particles behave, uh, trying to characterize their masses, their spins, um, and other uh, intrinsic properties of these particles that uh, are very difficult to measure. And um, of course, uh, one of the key drivers uh, in modern physics right now is the search for dark matter um, and dark energy. So dark matter and dark energy uh, are essentially complete unknowns for us and uh, we would like to find out um, what particles are responsible for um, comprising or what particles are responsible uh, for being dark matter um, and Physicists smash particles at higher and higher energies to discover um, if there is any sort of unknown particle that we have uh, yet to observe. So a, how? Oh, sorry. A quick clarification question: Like, what? What? Wh how do we know that dark matter and dark energy exists? Like, we, it seems like we don't know what it is yet. We're talking about it, so I, I'm, I'm very curious. Like. How do we like know that it's a thing, but not know what it is, if that makes sense? Sure. So that's a good question. Uh, so I'll start with dark matter because we know a little bit more about dark matter. We know actually how dark matter behaves. And we actually know that to a fairly good precision. Um, ironically, we know more about dark matter and what it is not. Um, and we can do this through relatively precise measurements. And the reason we're able to do this is because um, we have yet to discover the nature of what these dark matter postulated particles are. So how, do we, how did we find out about dark matter to begin with? Um, so, Back uh, back in the day, many decades ago, um, there was a scientist named uh, Vera Rubin, and uh, she was making uh, observations of of galaxies, of specifically spiral galaxies. And spiral galaxies have um, arms, and you can see many of these pictures um, through public releases from NASA and and other sources, and they're they're you know very photogenic objects that uh, astronomers like to capture with <laughs> their amateur telescopes in their backyards. Um, <laughs> these spiral galaxies actually rotate, 
but their rotation is quite slow, at least on human time scales. Now, the sun actually orbits around our galaxy at around a velocity of 200 kilometers a second. And that sounds quite fast, but on the scale of galaxies, uh, which are on kiloparsec scales, these are uh, um, not fast at all compared to what we humans experience as time. So how did we get to the point where uh, we found out that there was dark matter? Well, Vera Rubin was measuring um, how fast uh, stars were orbiting around the galaxy um, in these spiral arms. And uh, she made these plots called uh, rotation curves. And um, you would expect that when you go further out from the center of the galaxy that uh, your orbit uh, rate is actually going to slow or at least... Um, you know, have some sort of um, decline because you're just farther away. Uh, but she actually found out that this was not the case and that uh, objects further away are orbiting basically in the same manner as objects that were closer into the center. And this is very unusual. It's yet another counterintuitive discovery. Why was that the case? nobody knew was there hidden mass inside that we didn't know about that is essentially how uh, we came to the conclusion that there must be um, something called dark matter because it is some sort of matter that seems to be there um, but we cannot see it at all so this is um, where the dark matter discovery uh, arose. And so now uh, we're trying to find what this matter could be. You know, is we're, particle physicists uh, want to find out um, if it is a particle, what kind of particle it is that um, would create this kind of large scale effect. Because if dark matter were as influential as, um, as it seems to be, uh, then they should be everywhere. They should be passing through our bodies every second, um, undetected. So, hmm. you know, these things uh, likely don't interact very much with um, small-scale things, uh, but uh, interact only at the larger scales. So this is one of the, the key open questions in modern physics today. Um, Dark energy, on the other hand, um, is very different. Um, it is not the same as dark matter. Um, and to simply say it, astronomers and physicists have no idea what dark energy is. We have no inkling. And to this day, um, people are still trying to theorize uh, what dark energy could be. How did we discover it? Well, in 2011, the Nobel Prize was awarded to a team. Um, one of the a team actually based uh, out of Berkeley, uh, where they discovered the accelerating expansion of the universe. 
And before that, the thought was, well, will the universe end by collapsing in on itself? Or will it uh, expand as um, Edwin Hubble found that it was expanding um, forever? Did it just expand forever? Um, but in fact, um, Saul Perlmutter and his team uh, back in the 90s found out that the universe's expansion was not constant. It was not slowing because of gravity. In fact, it was speeding up as if there were some sort of anti-gravity energy that was being injected into the universe somehow. And uh, the, the conclusion from that is that there must be some sort of uh, extra energy and people coined it dark energy. Cool. Yeah, wow. The wild. I, I'm super curious to see what unfolds in this whole field over the next uh, decades, I'm sure. Um, kind of going back a little bit, uh, I'm super curious, like, what your actual daily life is like. Like, so do you just kind of, like, get to the lab and, like, enter the magical physics lab and do magical physics things? Or, like, like what, 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 does, what does it actually look like to really do physics, do your research? Right. So uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I am part of the small niche of astrophysicists who focus on building new instruments and advancing the technology that goes behind these new instruments, such as new detectors uh, and new spectrographs. And so um, I spend currently around a third of my time in the lab and um the rest of my time um, sitting in front of a computer doing uh, software development and um, working on uh, analysis of, of the data that we collect in the lab. Uh, and so in the lab, um, oftentimes we deal with um, things like uh, cryogenics. So detectors usually have to be cooled to very low temperatures. And so um, oftentimes we use liquid nitrogen for that. And um, we do a lot of um, tests in the lab uh, with the electronics. Um, and uh, we do um, in the computer, in the office, a lot of software development to operate these electronics and manipulate these devices and see how they respond and how they perform. Um, and how they would perform if uh, used in a telescope. And so um, that is um, essentially the, the scope of um, our work. Uh, some people may spend uh, more time in the lab um, if they're doing a lot of hardware development, um, but oftentimes hardware uh, requires uh, some degree of software development as well. Uh, so it is important to have um, proficiency in, in both um, hardware and software aspects of your project. And um, one other thing that I think it is not just us instrumentalists that, that have to do this, but um, across all different uh, scientific fields, of course, is a lot of writing, whether it be uh, writing papers or writing funding proposals. Um, and specifically for astronomers, uh, we often need to write uh, observing proposals. So many of the 
most uh, cutting edge telescopes that astronomers use, such as the Hubble Space Telescope um, or the new uh, James Webb Space Telescope or JWST, which was launched um, last year. Um, so these uh, major flagship uh, instruments uh, have uh, a competitive uh, observing proposals process where any astronomer or anyone really for that matter um, can write a proposal um, specifying the amount of time they would like on the telescope and what they would like to observe and what their scientific goals are and what their technical justifications are. Um, and they can propose to NASA or whatever agency that runs uh, these major flagship missions. And, uh, you know, they can submit their proposal and see if they're selected um, to be able to make these uh, observations. Uh, so there are, there are a lot of different hats that uh, we have to wear, um, but um, that makes life all the more interesting. Absolutely. I um, also I remember you um, uh, for our listeners I uh, Kenneth and I were always chatting and he's always telling me about how he's traveling here and traveling there he is he's got a he's got to travel a lot I mean obviously things ebb and flow ebb and flow but um, I'm curious Kenneth like what are you traveling for and uh, like how often do you get to travel like where do you go like I'm very curious. Ah, yes. So, yeah, that's definitely one important aspect of being an astronomer is um, you should uh, you should want to travel because um, because our ground telescopes on Earth are, are based in some of the most exotic, beautiful and remote locations on Earth. And um, as an instrumentalist, uh, we often need to go to these places in order to either install our instruments or decommission old ones or upgrade existing instrumentation. So these are all opportunities to go and uh, check out these remote observatory sites. So some of these places um, are like on the big island of Hawaii or in the, in the Chilean highlands, in the Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, or even on the Canary Islands and in the South Pole. There are all um, sorts of telescopes in these different locations. And, um, and there are opportunities to go and travel to these places uh, to, 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 to carry out our scientific mission. Uh, so, so traveling to observe is definitely uh, a large component of what we do as instrumentalists. Less so as observers, though, because um, nowadays a lot of the telescopes that we use are, are roboticized, and so uh, we're able to uh, remotely control the telescope from the comfort of our own home, which is very nice at times um, and allows us to get sleep instead of staying up all night. So actually, uh, interestingly, very few astronomers need to stay up all night to observe anymore because a lot of these observations um, are taken uh, remotely and um, you're sitting time zones away and um, all you need is uh, communication with uh, a technician on the site and you don't need to be there. So uh, in modern astronomy, a lot of this is indeed um, 
indeed um, becoming an automated process. But uh, for us who do uh, instrumentation, uh, we have the privilege of actually going to these places and um, checking them out. And of course, like every other scientist, we have many uh, symposiums and conferences that, that uh, we go to, and these can be anywhere around the world. That's super cool. I mean, I think dark skies, just in general, are some of the most beautiful things. This is personal. Um, but I think they're beautiful. And I was hoping you were going to bring up uh, the Webb Telescope because I was going to ask you about it. And, you know, I'd like to hear your perspective as someone whose area of expertise is like the instruments um, and the components of, I guess, the tools and the telescopes and the technology is, I guess, twofold. The first aspect being, where do you think the future of that is going? Like, what's our next step after Webb? And then I think... The other element is how can, you know, the general public utilize web if there's a way? Um, what message would you like them to take away from it? Because I think even just looking at some of the pictures, it's so inspiring, the clarity of the images. And, you know, I think it's definitely influencing a lot of people and young people, too, um, and it's piquing their interest in astronomy. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on all of that. Yeah. So that's a very timely question. Um, so the JWST, to give everyone some background, um, is uh, an infrared observatory uh, that uh, launched in actually launched last year uh, on Christmas, um, and uh, it is a space observatory, and it actually. Um, does not orbit in the same way as Hubble. It actually orbits um, further than the moon, a million miles to midnight. Um, oh, wow. Farther than the, farther than the Earth. So it actually sits um, at one, we call them one of the Lagrangian points. So it is, uh, it's called an unstable equilibrium. So it sits a little bit further from the moon in this spot. And so it has to actually have thrusters that uh, corrects its position every so often. So uh, we call it basically the Sun-Earth um, L2 orbit. And um, this, the reason for putting this telescope in that particular location, um, one and a half million kilometers from Earth, um, is because it is an infrared instrument, as I mentioned. So. Um, you would see that um, it has um, a large uh, honeycomb-shaped uh, mirror, and it is coated uh, with a very thin uh, layer of gold. And um, the reason is because it needs to observe infrared light. And Earth is a huge radiator of infrared light. So in order for such a telescope to be effective, you need to have uh, the mirrors pointed away from the Earth. So the mirror segment um, in totality is uh, six and a half meters in diameter. Wow. And so it's a large, large mirror. And underneath the mirror, there has to be a sun shield in order to prevent any additional heat from uh, creeping up anywhere close to where the mirrors are uh, and where the detectors sit behind the mirror. So um, this is a major undertaking that has uh, been 
in the works for the past few decades um, and has finally with um, you know cost overruns and delays finally has made it up into the sky um, and so one question you might be wondering is why is the infrared uh, so interesting well there are many um, answers I could give, but um, one that I'm particularly passionate about um, is uh, what we call dusty star forming galaxies. And so um, in the history of the universe, uh, star formation has not been a constant. Um, star formation now is actually less than what it was uh, many, many billions of years ago. Um, and about maybe more than 10 billion years ago, um, meant, uh, yeah, and that, that was actually a picture of um, the pillars of creation, I think. <laughs> Sorry. For, for our listeners, Sarah just showed, uh, showed Kenneth a uh, picture on Instagram of the, um, the pillars of creation, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a nebula um, in just somewhere... In space so the pillars of creation if you look at them is um essentially a stellar nursery where you can witness uh star formation happening um so um that is where new stars are being born cool so um if you extrapolate star formation uh, throughout the history of the universe and we have ways of doing this right so we have tried and true ways of estimating how much star formation there is today versus how much star formation there was a billion years ago two billion years ago 10 billion years ago and so based on um, our findings um, we um, find that around um, maybe 10 to 11 billion um, years ago, star formation uh, was uh, ho much higher than, than it is now. And uh, one of the questions that we want to ask is, um, you know, why, why is that the case? And um, James Webb T Space Telescope is, is going to be able to answer such questions because they're, the, the infrared capabilities allows us to peer um, into high redshift regimes, which means we're able to stare further into the history of the universe than we ever have been able to in the past. Uh, so, so how does that work? Um, so when the universe expands, the light is basically um, an, ele an electromagnetic wave. And when the universe expands, this electromagnetic wave is, expands with the universe because space itself is expanding. And so you stretch out these waves. And if you stretch out these waves, what you're doing is making the wavelengths longer. The frequencies um, is actually decreasing, right? So if you decrease the frequency or increase the wavelength, what you're doing in effect is changing the color of that light. So the wavelength of the light determines what you see as its color. And if you change that wavelength, you're changing its color. So by increasing the wavelength, you're making the light redder. And so at some point, 
you're gonna stretch out that wavelength so much that it's not only just going to be red, it's gonna be beyond red. And what's beyond the visible color spectrum, it's going to be entering the infrared. So a lot of the light emitted from the early universe 10 billion years ago is actually reaching us here on Earth now uh, as infrared light. And so JWST is built exactly for the purpose of capturing this early light. And um, this early light is where um, a lot of these dusty star-forming galaxies um, were forming and, and creating new stars uh, in the early universe. And in order to find out how galaxies have formed, how galaxies have evolved over the many billions of years of cosmic time, um, JWST is our time machine, our window to the history of the universe uh, to see how these galaxies um, have come to be and essentially how we came to be. That's that's absolutely incredible. I yeah, wow. That we it really is a time machine, isn't it? That that's so cool. And just cuz it, it takes so long for all that light to get to us, like literally like wow. Yeah, I I I'm still processing the magnitude of a lot of these questions that physicists get to ask. And honestly, um I'm really really excited to see where this all goes and i'm sure we're going to learn so many new things about the universe that we probably didn't even think of before um through a lot of these cool advances in instrumentation and advances in theory uh all of these different kinds of things and um i really want to thank you so much for sharing all of this with our us and our listeners um i'm sure like obviously like i feel like i have so many questions about this like i could talk forever about this i'm so curious um but yeah it's been incredible to have you on here and um thank you so much i don't know uh, one one other thing i'd like to point out um to our listeners kind of just a reminder that um kenneth has exemplified um, to us a lot of the important things about being a good scientist, being skeptical, being curious, um, asking new questions, being creative, um, all of these things. Um, and so I think those are really important principles that we can take away from this. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, without further ado, thank you so much, Kenneth. We It's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um I'm happy to, um, of course, keep uh, answering any questions that um, anyone might have. Um, and uh, anyone is free to reach out to me if they have further questions. All right. And if you're interested in following along with The Interactome, you can find us on Twitter at The Interactome, on Instagram at Interactome underscore media, or on Mastodon at, at The Interactome at Universidon.com. Thank you very much for listening to us. Feel free to comment on posts, ask us questions there, or you can also just email us directly at interactomedia at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And we're looking forward to having you join us next time on The Interactome.